Malachi chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who, who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We're in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. We're continuing our study in the book of Malachi. Some of you are wondering, why don't we take some time to preach something else this morning? Malachi doesn't seem relevant to the events of the day. Two reasons. I am stubborn, and I am a routine person, and already my routine has been completely shot, okay? And so my brain is completely out of whack. You're not taking Malachi from me, okay? Preach a Malachi. There's another reason, and it's a philosophy of ministry, a philosophy of the Word of God. When do you prepare for difficult times? Okay, so the message telling you how to operate in the times of a pandemic was a year ago. The time to figure out how you respond to difficulty is not when difficulty hits. It's a year earlier when we were too tired to read our Bible. Oh, now it's getting real. I'm sorry. But that's exactly how it is. I said, you know what, because I don't know what's coming next, but apparently God wants what Malachi offers us for whatever's coming next, and I'm not going to skip it because I want us to be well uh, prepared. And besides that, uh, I love Malachi, and I don't want to uh, skip it. We had already planned for the next two weeks, the weekends of spring break, to not do Malachi, to do something different. So we will have an opportunity maybe uh, to think about our current events from the lens of Scripture over the next couple of weeks. All right, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Some of you like titles in your messages because you like to take notes. You are going to be a happy camper today. My type A note takers who like organized outlines, you have struck gold today. Three tips for marriage. Three, I have three tips for marriage. Don't get too excited. I'm being sarcastic. But here we go. Three tips for marriage. Number one, are you ready? Guys, you got your pens out? Don't betray your spouse. First tip for marriage, don't betray your spouse. Think of the words that are synonyms with betray. Stabbed in the back, blind-sided, sucker-punched. Betrayal is the worst. If an enemy 
smacks you in the face, you say, well, well, that's what enemies do. But for a friend to slap me in the face, not only does it hurt physically, it hurts at the deepest level. First tip of marriage, don't betray your spouse. And the reason I'm framing it this way as we discussed this this morning is because God is framing his relationship with his people, including us, in the context of marriage. He is saying the relationship we have with God is like a marriage. He is our father. He is our spouse in that sense. And he wants to demonstrate what it would look like if the people of Israel were married to somebody the way they were married to God. And the first thing he points out is they have betrayed him. They have rejected God as God alone and instead had betrayed him to serve other gods. So look again. This is verses 10, 11, and 12. Israel's betrayal uh, to God, their father and spouse. God had created them according to verse 1. And he says this, Why are you faithless, profaning the covenant that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Judah had been faithless. So this is what they were doing. They were still good worshiping Israelites. They were still going to the temple. They were still offering sacrifices to the God of Israel and also offering sacrifices to Asherah and also offering sacrifices to Baal and also offering sacrifices to Molech. So they were worshiping God and saying, look, God, what's your problem? We are worshiping you. And God says, oh, no, no, no. You only get to worship me, to worship the God of Israel is to recognize there is no other God, and to worship other gods is an act of betrayal that can only be compared with the, a spouse betraying his, her husband or a husband betraying his wife. I mean, any of us might imagine this if a husband told his wife, hey, I love you, dear, everything's good, we have a great marriage, but, you know, on Thursday nights, I'm going to bring my girlfriend home, and she's going to eat with us. And I don't want you to think that that means there's anything wrong with you and me. Obviously, I'm married to you. You're my only wife. Now, and, and I have a girlfriend, and she's going to join us for dinner on Thursdays, and probably once a week, once a month, I'm going to take a weekend away. Now, how is the wife going to respond to that? She should be very upset. She has been betrayed. But it's worse. It would be better if this guy would have come home and said, I'm leaving you. I have a mistress. He wants her to think he's faithful, even though he has a mistress. This is Israel's betrayal. This is the betrayal that is actually found in every human heart. Israel was coming to God and saying, we worship you, God. We love you, God, in addition to these other gods. And God says, you cannot worship me as God and also worship other gods. They were thinking that there could be a sense of connection where I can worship God and also sync that up with worshiping other gods. In fact, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of things that are very similar. But here's what we have to understand about God as our Father and God as our spouse. God expects His worshipers to be devoted worshipers rejecting all other gods. First tip for marriage to God, be devoted, reject all other gods. 
We have to understand that God sees his relationship with us as an exclusive relationship, a relationship of devotion, and a relationship of covenant promise, where he makes a promise to us and he calls us to worship him by living in that covenant as exclusive. And so look at what we're doing. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So a couple of things are going to happen, and I want to set this up for the next sections that we're going to have in Malachi chapter 2 as well. They were doing this in two ways. Number one, they were worshiping other gods both in the temple and elsewhere and expecting God to be cool with it. The second thing they were doing is in their actual marriage, they were marrying others who worshiped other gods. So uh, a Jewish man would have a Jewish wife and they worshiped the temple together. And then he might marry a Moabite woman and worship her God in her ways. And then he might marry an Ammonite woman and worship her God in her ways. And think of any kings of Israel who did this. You can shout out. There's like 12 people. No, there's more than 12. Anybody know the name? Solomon. How many wives did he have? Yeah. And why was he having these wives? Two reasons. Number one, political reasons to have peace with these kingdoms all around him. Secondly, we don't need to go into that reason. Thirdly, because his heart was taken astray because... Worshiping God is good, but boy, it gets dull after a while. It's the same routine. Really, another offering? With this God, this routine over here, it's a, that's a lot more exciting. You get to be outside. You don't have to go to the temple. You get to offer different kinds of animals, different dance, different songs. It's a little more appealing. And so Solomon's heart was led astray. So that was happening in Israel as well. They were rejecting the spouse who was faithful to God and rejecting the God of that spouse. And God is putting it all into one bowl and saying, you're rejecting me. And you can't be married to me and expect me to put up with betrayal, God says. God doesn't need us. If we're going to betray him, he's going to call it out and say, I am not going to have a relationship with you. That's a relationship of betrayal. That, this is what, so the Lord issues this stark warning in verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of a man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. That is, somebody who is worshiping God but also wants to have their foot in the other pool. May God cut off their descendants. Now, why would he make that? That's such a strange threat, isn't it? Here's why. The people of Israel, God called them out by covenant to Abraham, by covenant to Isaac, by covenant of Jacob. And what was his purpose of establishing a covenant with the people of Israel? Anybody remember the purpose? He told Abraham, I want to bless the world through you. How is God going to bless the world through the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The Messiah. He is going to send the Redeemer who is going to redeem the world and bless the world by offering relationship to God through forgiveness of sins. And God is now saying, You will not be participating in the people of God if you think you can worship God and something else. Because what God is up to is a worldwide, big-time thing, and if you want to be a part of what God is doing in His people, you will worship Him and Him alone. Well, it seems like God is kind of demanding, doesn't it? It's almost like He's, I don't know, God, creator of the universe? That's exactly how He's acting. He's not being stuffy. He's not being arrogant. He's just simply recognizing he alone is God and he alone ought to be 
worship. One last comparison by way of illustration, and don't betray your spouse. Uh, for those of us who are married, not everybody's married, and I should say this, just so you know, you don't have to be married to be a human. Uh, you can be a, a full person, unmarried. So we're not saying here that in order to worship God, you have to be married. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, I wish everybody was like me, single, fully devoted to God alone. But here's an illustration nonetheless. When you're married, you aren't always spousing. So you're married at home, but then maybe you go to work. And so you go to work, and you, and you work. However, you work as one who is married, but you don't work different. You still do the job, right? It, you go to work. Everywhere you go, you're married. Maybe it has a sense of what you're doing. Maybe you might do something a little bit different since you're married. But for the most part, you're approaching your life as it is. And you don't see that as a betrayal. But this is the question we have to understand about our relationship with God. We think we get to do relationship with God here or this morning in your living room live streaming, we get to do a relationship with God on Sunday morning, and then when we go out, relationship with God goes up on the shelf, and we'll check back in with you on Sunday. Or maybe we'll check back in with you on Wednesday. But for the most part, my relationship with God is a couple hours on Sunday, maybe a couple hours on Wednesdays. The rest of my life is my time. And God's response to that is, I'm sorry you thought you had any time. It's all my time. So what he is calling his people to do is understand we have a relationship with God, not just when we're at church, not when we're reading, just when we're reading our Bible. We have a relationship with God when we're driving down the street. We have a relationship with God when we're standing in Walmart at the empty paper towel and toilet paper shelf. And, you know, you're struggling with the flesh. Like, really? R really? Okay. Um, I didn't ram the guy with my cart. I mean, it got away from me a little. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. Uh, it, do we have a relationship? When we're at work, are we, are we a worshiper of God at work? Or is worship of God over that Sunday? Are we a worshiper of God when we're parenting? Or, no, this is my job. I just got to get my kids to behave well. That, that's for Sunday. Are we a worshiper of God when we're, when we're recreating, when we're playing, when we're playing golf, or when we're camping, when we're on vacation? Are we a worshiper of God or... Or is it, no, we're on vacation, so God's on the shelf. I'll check in back with him when I'm back in town. And God is saying this. You want a good tip for marriage? Don't betray me when you're not here. I am fully yours. Be fully mine. First tip for marriage. Don't betray God by seeking uh, other areas, other places where we have loyalty. Uh, next thing. We all make mistakes, right? Thank you, Howard. Yeah, thank you. I wasn't thinking of you in particular, but yeah, but we all make mistakes. So the question is, what do we do when we've been wrong? Second tip for marriage. Guys, write this down. Are you ready? Don't pretend to be sorry when you're not. Now, first of all, let's stick with the marriage theme. That's really good advice. They know. Okay? They know. Don't pretend to be sorry. Boy, I really, you had, unless you're a much better actor than I am. They know if you're really sorry, okay? And what we need to understand, we should not pretend to be sorry when we're not. A, a child might do something wrong, and they get caught, and you say, you're grounded. And now all of a sudden, what happens once you say those two magic words? You're grounded from your iPad. You're grounded from TV or your telephone. What's, what's the immediate thing that comes flying out of the child's mouth? Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you don't know what I was thinking. 
boy, that would mean so much more if it was before I said you're grounded, right? But as soon as the consequences come out, it just feels like you're sorry you're grounded. But the actual deed that led up to the punishment is something that probably you still feel is okay. This is exactly what's happening in the people of Israel. Look at what he says. Here's another thing you do. Verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offering, and he doesn't accept it with favor from your hand. So what would happen is people would bring offerings to the Lord, and a lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll read through this, they would bring an offering to the Lord when they're getting ready to go do something, seeking the Lord's blessing on what they're going to go do. So you see David do this a lot. He's going to seek the blessing of the Lord. Should I go conquer the Philistines? And God will say, yeah, go get them. And, and he'll go with the favor of God into what he's going to do. And what's happening with the people of Israel is God says, you shouldn't worship other gods. And they're like, oh, we're so sorry, God. Boo-hoo. Can you favor us again? What, what he really wants to know, are you going to be loyal to me and me alone? But what they want is just his stuff. They're not overly concerned with actually worshiping God. They just want God to show favor to them. Their sorrow here at the altar is only because God is distant and because they're not getting the blessing God would normally give them, not because what they did was evil. They don't feel bad about what they did. They feel bad that God has brought punishment on them because of their deeds. Like it or not, whether this is something we like or not, Getting caught and admitting we're wrong is different than admitting we're wrong before we're caught. And this is the heart attitude that God is getting at here. When we come to the Lord and say, Lord, I was wrong, are we saying we're wrong because we're busted, or are we willing to admit, God, you're right, I'm wrong, what I did was wrong, I need to not do that anymore. And I have sorrow, not because I'm busted, but because I have offended you. I have hurt uh, your uh, sense of righteousness. And I have infringed on your uh, generosity to me. Am I sorry for being caught, or am I sorry because God is holy, and I want to recognize he knows better than I do what ought uh, to be. So what we discover here is Israel wasn't really sorry for what they did. They just wanted God's blessing. They just wanted God's favor. Here's a real common way for us modern people to do this. Is we say, you know what I just need to do? I need to make sure that in my relationship with God, the good things I do outweigh the bad things I do. If, as long as what I do good, if I you know, go to church on Sunday and pray a little bit, read my Bible, and I'm, uh, you know, I let the guy in front of me in the line at the store, and that'll, that'll make it okay that on the weekend I do these several things that I'd be embarrassed if people knew about. So as long as I keep the balance up, everything's good. And what does God think of that? I don't think so. You don't get to play with that, he is saying. He is saying, I want your devotion to me. I want you in an act of worship to recognize my righteousness and say no to what's wrong because I know better than you. As an act of worship to say no to sin and agree with God, when I sin, I am doing wrong, and the primary evil of sin is it offends God. 
The primary evil of sin is when I sin, I am telling God, I know better than you what ought to be. These individuals are saying, I don't think we're wrong. What we want is God's favor even though we're doing something wrong. And what God wants is their heart to be broken and repentant. He wants their hearts to say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, will you forgive me again? When our heart's in that place, what do you think God's response is? Well, we'll see how you do. Do you do that? Yeah, any of you all, any, maybe it's just me, any of you guys picture God as sort of like this? We'll see. Is it just me? Because that's not him in the Bible. When we come to him with our heart, God, I was wrong. I was wrong again. I was, oh, man, I was wrong again repeatedly. I don't want to be there, God. I'm wrong. You're right. Will you forgive me? What does he say? Look at the cross. You're forgiven, bro. Come to me. I will make you clean. I will give you life. And in fact, I will, by your, my spirit, give you the power to overcome that sin. When we come to God in repentance, don't come with your deals. Your deals are lame. God, I promise you, if you'll forgive me, and anybody else ever done this? I promise you, I will never do that. Please don't ever pray that. God will hold you to your promises. There's no deal to be made. Here's the deal you should strike with God when we come with a repentant heart. God, my understanding is Jesus died on the cross for me. I'll take his righteousness. As an act of worship, God, would you give me the power to overcome that sin? Will you give me the strength to say no because you died for me? That's a deal God is ready to make right now. Yes, here's your forgiveness because Jesus died for you. But the problem with these individuals and the problem with us is they had this pet sin and they didn't really think it was wrong. They really think it was that big a deal. And this is what we do with sin that we don't want to let go of. When, when we struggle with anger, the issue is not that we're angry. The issue is that we know what's best, and the sooner everybody figures it out, the better. I'll stop being angry when you all finally figure out that I'm right. right? So the problem is not me being upset. The problem is the world hasn't figured out I'm God. And the people who struggle with anger here, well, that's not what I think. Think about it. You do. You struggle, when we struggle with these sins, we say, well, what I'm not doing is wrong. Okay, so I, I struggle with uh, hitting up uh, different things to alleviate stress, whether I'm going to leave and go golfing for eight hours and, and, and uh, just abandon all responsibility, or I'm going to uh, drink too much, or I'm going to use drugs, or I'm going to watch TV all day and abandon everything else that, that needs to be done. And all I'm trying to do there is control my stress and say, well, it's not wrong. Well, it is if I'm trying to get from something else what God ought to provide. I get free from anxiety not merely by resting, but by resting in the Lord. And usually the sins that we really struggle with that we're not really sorry about, the problem is we don't really see that they're sins. And so some of you, well, how do I, what do I do if I'm not really sure if something is a sin or not? Well, first of all, if you're married, that's easy. How do you do that? Ask your wife. No big deal. Now, your relationship may be such that she's, uh, yeah, your sin is you're too attentive. You need to just not be quite, uh, um, you need to have people in your life who have the ability to say, you know what, here's the thing. You need to have people in your life who can shine a light in your heart and say, you know what, I think you need to take a look at this. That's hard to do if we don't have people who are close to us. We can say, you need uh, to really be sorry for this and ask for God's grace. 
and help his willingness to overcome. Now, under grace, uh, we might be tempted to think that sin is not a big deal. I would suggest, if we were to look at the book of Romans, which we don't have time to do this morning, that under grace, sin is a bigger deal. I would suggest that sinning after the cross should break our hearts more than those who sinned before the cross. And I'm not saying that in a theological sense. I'm, a, I'm saying that in a relationship sense. He died on the cross, and we still sin. Now, we all do, so I don't want you to walk out of here feeling too much shame, just a little. But the fact that he sin, they died on the cross and paid for our sin, and we say, okay, that's cool. I'll go ahead and do some more. That's offensive to a degree that we can't describe, isn't it? That we would presume on the cross of Christ? That we would presume on the sacrifice of Christ? Now, gratefully, we have a God who has poured out his grace on us and says, yes, I know you are broken and I know you are fallen and I know you are going to struggle with all kinds of sin, but we ought not to, in loving relationship with God, presume on his grace because he died on the cross for us. That should awaken our heart just a little bit to say, no, God, I am really sorry. I don't want to do that anymore. Do whatever you need to do, God, in my life that I never do that again. I don't know how to overcome it, God. You figure it out. And that is a heart that's broken. We look at the cross and say, that's what my sin cost. I don't want to do it anymore. Whatever it takes. I think Jesus said something about cutting off hands and plucking out eyes. I think he took it pretty serious. Now, don't cut off your hands. Wash them. Um, don't cut the, and don't touch your eyes, obviously. How many tips have we done so far? Two? First tip of marriage, and, and you guys are just like, wow, why isn't this a book? Don't betray your spouse. Secondly, don't pretend you're sorry when you're not. Finally, third tip for marriage, you ready? Don't marry other people. Now, I know, why is this not a book? Why isn't this, uh, I know, here we go. Verse 14, you say, why doesn't God favor us? Because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly, excuse me, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, covers the garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So again, we touched on this a little bit earlier. What was happening is, is folks were marrying people. They, some were abandoning their wives. Others were just having multiple wives so they, and worshiping multiple gods. And God was saying... Your faithlessness does violence two ways. Number one, to your relationship with God, and secondly, to the relationship you, with, you had with the wife of your youth, the woman that, uh, that you called uh, your own. And we have to understand God's view of love is on display here. The love in the Scripture is a covenant, devoted love, exclusive love that it holds the person I'm expressing love to in a place of distinguished honor that's defined not by their deservedness, but by the covenant. And so what God is saying is my relationship with you is covenant. He puts us by promise in Christ in a place of distinguished honor. 
And what he is saying is that's the nature of marriage as well, where a person by covenant puts the other individual in a place of distinguished honor because of covenant, not deservedness. Because he's making reference to the wife of your youth, okay? Uh, so w- my wife and I had occasion to go get away last week, and Seth preached last week. So grateful for Seth coming in and bringing the heat. Uh, we watched it on, we were live streaming last week. There were fewer people live streaming than there are today. Um, and he did a great job. But uh, on the beach, as you know, there's romantic couples. And you can guess how long they've been married uh, by their walk down the beach, right? Uh, the couples who are dating, you really can't tell which one is which. They're so close. And you actually are, like in some ways, you know, I don't know if that is appropriate for a public place. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to judge you, uh, but boy, you seem really interested in each other's uh, bodies. Um, and then you have another couple, you know, they're walking down, they're holding hands or maybe armor on the shoulder. And then you have another couple, one is walking the dog over here and one's uh, picking up the poop over there. And uh, so uh, it, over time, the relationship changes. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's what is. And, what, and, and God's making reference to the beach. He said, listen, the wife that you walked down the beach with, the people said, guys, get a room. Now you're treating her with disdain. What changed? What changed over the course of those years? Did the covenant change? And the answer is no. The covenant's the same, and so your, your view of other ought to be the same, even if it's expressed a little differently over time. That person is held in distinguished honor because of covenant. Well, you don't know. I've had 10 years of difficulty. That's not how this is defined. It's defined by covenant, not what you are getting out of the relationship. I'm letting you think about that for a little bit. Because God is framing our relationship with him in the same ways he is framing marriage. So we have to understand in the Bible, marriage is not about mutual fulfillment of the couple. In the Bible, marriage is about two people showing what God is like. I'm, gonna, I'm giving you time to argue with me in your head. Marriage in the scripture, especially here in Malachi, he's saying people are going to get the wrong idea about what I'm like looking at your marriages. And the primary purpose in marriage is to display the nature of God and his covenant love for us. Look at it, verse 14. Why does God not show us his favor? Because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by what? Mutual fulfillment. No, by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? What's his argument for their connectedness in covenant? Their union by the spirit. The marriage relationship is intended to be a spiritual act of worship where we demonstrate what God is like in relationship with one another. It's not whether or not it's paying off. It's not whether or not he or she gets me. It's not whether or not he's the perfect husband or she's the perfect wife. The question is, what is God like, and how do I, in a marriage where I'm bringing my brokenness and my spouse is bringing her her brokenness, how do we then reflect the nature of what God is like? Some days... Marriage is great. And others days, 
aren't those days. I, you try doing this with your wife in the room, all right? <laughs> and, 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 but think about your relationship with God. Is that any different? Some days you get up and you read the Bible and you get to the end of your devotional you don't want to stop. You're like, man, this is, a, I can't believe, I can't believe, and, and you email me. Oh, look what I saw in the Bible, this is incredible. And I love getting those emails, don't get me wrong. Other days, you read the Bible, it's like reading sawdust. You're just like, really? I can't pronounce any of these names. And there's a lot of these names. And then I read something I don't understand. It sounds like God just killed a bunch of innocent women and children. I don't even know what to do with that. I, and, and you're reading the Bible, and you're like, God, this is not working out. And then your, your Bible reads go, and then you get a speeding ticket on the way to work to get laid off. And now it's, God, where are you, bro? Really? That's how we're going to do this? And so, and so isn't our relationship with God, that's how our relationship with the body of Christ is, isn't it? Some days you come down here, you're like, man, why would anybody else want to go to church anywhere else? Other days you come down here, you go, why does anybody go to church there? Right? I mean, this happens. But the problem is our culture has told us everything is in our life to benefit us and bring us meaning and significance. And the Bible comes at it different. Everything God brings into our life is an expression of his covenant love, and the relationships in our life are designed to force us to worship God in covenant love. Loving people when they're easy to love and it's fun, and loving people when it's a challenge that displays God's nature to the world. And then when we decide this person isn't for me, and I walk away, what have I told people about God's love? That if you are bad enough, he will walk away from you. And it's not true. And it's heartbreaking that people would think that about God because of the nature of our covenant marriage. And that's precisely what he's getting at here. He's saying it's inseparable, your relationship with one another. Now, he's specifically applying this in the marriage relationship, but this is true in any relationship in the body of Christ. The question is, do we just get together when it pays off, or do we get together because of the covenant? And what does the world see? Jesus talked about it this way in John 17. The world will know I am the Messiah because of your union, your oneness together. The covenant love that exists between you will tell the world what I am like. And God here is saying, worship me by having relationships that are defined by covenant. Always there, covenant relationships. I left my notes like 20 minutes ago, so I'm trying to figure out how to rejoin them. Um, Look at verse 16. Man of, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, his garment, his very clothes are covered in violence. So he's, this is not primarily or only a relational thing. He's saying we're doing emotional and relational and covenantal violence when we rend relationships in this way. And he says, guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. Do not be faithless. Be faithful. Now, it doesn't mean you have to put up with a terrible relationship in your life, whether it be marriage or friendship or whatever, but it's, what it means is, well, let's figure it out. Let's, let's figure out what it looks like to go from here in faithfulness, but relationships in the scripture are defined by covenant devotion because God designed relationships between humans to be covenantally defined 
and satisfaction and personal satisfaction in those relationships is secondary, if at all necessary. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus' devotion. Look at Jesus' devotion to the Father. How did Jesus' devotion to the Father pay off in the Garden of Gethsemane? It hurt. How did Jesus' devotion to the Father pay off on the cross? It hurt. How did Jesus' devotion to the Father pay off in the wilderness? Forty days, no food, no water, and his only company was the devil. It hurt. How does Jesus' devotion pay off when he's teaching his uh, disciples day in and day out, day in and day out? Three years later, somebody raises a hand and asks this question. Hey, Jesus, uh, which of us is the greatest? We were wondering, like, who's the awesomest? I mean, could you see Jesus over there going, oh, my lance, I just touched my face. Um, <laughs> Jesus' devotion to us is defined by covenant. You have to, I'm going to take it even next level here. Jesus does not need anything outside of himself because he is God. He is self-sustaining. We do not bring anything to Jesus relationally that he needs. If you and I never existed, he'd be fine. He voluntarily has covenant relationship with us for a couple of reasons. Number one, it brings him great glory and honor to have covenant relationship with us. Number two, for whatever reason, he enjoys us. He made us in his image. He likes hanging out. God wasn't walking in the garden in the cool of the day because he had nothing else to do. He wanted to see his people. So he desires to be with us, and out of devotion and covenant love to us, he extends that to us. And all he is saying is, one of the primary ways we exemplify Jesus is to operate in that same way in covenant love with others. Not whether or not pays off, but because they are other. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' devotion to us is the power for us to send love and devotion to others. I don't have to be devoted to somebody else because they're going to be return it. I can be devoted to somebody else because Jesus is devoted to me. So you can think of yourself relationally, not as a reservoir, but as a pipe. A reservoir says, I can give to you till I'm empty. A pipe says, I can give to you till God is empty. And when will he be empty? Never. And that's what we're doing. We're saying, I have connection with God that's covenant-based, so I can extend costly, covenant-based relationship and love to you because he will never run out. I don't need it to pay back from you. Now, let's be honest. It's easier if it does. I mean, let's be nice to each other, right? But it doesn't have to. I can express loving devotion to other because he expressed loving devotion to me first, and you can do uh, the same. Three tips for marriage. Did you get them? Because I want to save your marriage today. Don't betray your spouse. Jesus knows betrayal. Remember Judas? On the night Jesus was betrayed, we read. Do you think that hurt for Judas to betray Jesus, or was he cool with it because he knew what was going to happen? It hurt terribly. It hurt him the same way, if not more, it would hurt you and me. Jesus knows betrayal. He knows what it feels like for Judas to betray him. He knows what it feels like for you to betray him. He knows what you are feeling in the betrayal you have experienced. He is not ignorant to your sense of loss and pain in 
that betrayal. But the question is, knowing what betrayal feels like, where in your heart, where in my heart am I betraying Jesus right now? And am I willing to weep real tears for that? That's a fair question for each of us to ask wherever we're at in our walk with Christ. Where is my heart betraying Jesus now, knowing he is not indifferent? Is there a place for us to say, God, I love you so much, and Jesus, thank you for the cross. I'm sorry. My sin offended you, and it is a betrayal. There is a place for our heart to be broken for that. Secondary to that, don't pretend to be sorry when you're not. Why does your sin bother you? Is it because it's bad? Is it because it's naughty? Is it because it makes you feel shame? Is it because you got caught? You got busted? Everybody knows. To worship God in repentance is to understand sin. The primary evil of sin is it offends God who loves us so much. And our heart is broken because we have wronged our good Father God. And worship is willing to put our shame and that we got caught and it's bad and I shouldn't do it. Put that all in the secondary and say, God, the problem with my sin is it offends you. And we need to weep tears of sorrow knowing our sin offends God. Finally, three tips for marriage. You're welcome. Some of you came in and said, I cannot believe this is like a gold mine. Um, Don't marry other people. So I, I, I'm, I'm always looking for real clever ways to apply these things so that you'll pay attention. This is kind of, I don't know how to do this clever. Stay married. Now, I mean, that's the actual application of the second part, just stay married. Now, some of you are at that scene in your marriage, like, why would I ever marry anyone else? And some of you are saying, you know, the better application is don't commit murder right now, Okay. How, uh, you're, you're one of the, the last tip for marriage to be how to make it look like an accident. Okay? We have referrals to Christian counseling. Give me a call. Get you a good name. All right? That's good. And I'm, not, and I'm being serious. Some of it, that's what we need. We need resource. But we have to understand, don't marry other people. We need to abandon the lie of our culture, which says our relationships are designed to bring us pleasure and significance and mutual satisfaction. That is not what marriage is for. Marriage does that. It doesn't do that all the time. Am I right or not? Raise your hand if you agree with me on this. Marriage brings satisfaction 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Those of you who don't raise your hands, we're all jealous. Like, you should be up here preaching this, right? It doesn't. Don't marry other people. It's, the grass isn't greener on the other side. It will not pay off to end it. There, is, there isn't a benefit to getting to something good the wrong way. Now, I want us all to understand, there's many of us in there, this room where that, the ship sailed on that years ago. And we need to, what we need to do is apply the truth. Where am I today? So if we're in a second marriage or a third marriage or if we've been through that road, uh, cross covers that. Leave the shame where it belongs, on Christ. But where am I today? What does covenantal marriage and covenantal relationship look like today where God has me in this moment? How do I approach relationships different maybe than I have uh, in the past. Second thing is in our relationship with God. Same thing. Don't marry other people. Nothing will provide you the satisfaction God does. The satisfaction our culture is looking for today is the only thing God provides. What's, the, what's our culture looking for in this moment when you're a grocery store? A sense of control and that everything is going to be okay. And for some reason, 
A bedroom full of toilet paper makes people feel that way. And, I, and I'm not saying that's wrong. It's what is. For whatever reason, there's a sense. If I have enough food for a month, and toilet paper for a month, and bullets for a month, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how many that is, um, then I'm squared away. Now, we ought to be smart. You ought to be thinking, oh, what, what, are, what are the plans I need to put in place to make sure my family is cared for? There's nothing wrong with that. You ought to do that. But if my stockpile is my sense of security, I've misplaced my security. Stockpiles come and go. Read Job. God will never fail. Don't marry other spouses. What else do we look for? We look for money to pay off for us. We look for our job to pay off for us. We look for our uh, significance in the community to pay off for us. We look for the performance of our children in school or in sports or in being well-behaved at church to pay off for us. All of these things are false gods, and God says, don't marry them. I am all of those things for you. Keep those things where they belong. Don't betray your spouse. Don't pretend to be sorry when you're not. Don't marry other people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself.